I have always really loved the story of Exodus. Um, it was probably because I came of age alongside the 1998 cinematic masterpiece, DreamWorks The Prince of Egypt. Or it was maybe because I attended many vacation Bible schools where they taught us the songs to Oh Pharaoh, Pharaoh that had some awesome hand moves that helped me remember that Pharaoh was the bad guy because he wouldn't let God's people go. As I grew older, I was reintroduced to Exodus when I actually read it during a class in my undergrad studies and I fell in love with it even more. I loved the story of God calling a broken person to do big things, to restore freedom and to release the Hebrews from oppression. I loved the story of the unsung heroes, many of whom were women, who paved the way for Moses' journey. Fun fact, uh, Shifra and Pua, who we discussed in the first week of this series, are credited by Francine Clagsburn as the first known instance of civil disobedience in history. For me, a lot of my calling and practice in ministry is rooted in God's calling to the church in Amos 5 to let justice roll like a river. So I loved this book. I loved Exodus. And then I actually read it. Exodus chapter 12, verse 12 of the NRSV. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike down every firstborn in the land of Egypt, both human beings and animals. On all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. This text is hard, much harder than I realized when I was watching The Prince of Egypt or when I sang Pharaoh, Pharaoh with my friends. And that hasn't changed. As I was preparing this sermon, I found myself asking the same questions I asked when I first really read this scripture. How can this be the story of God's people? How do we preach a message of God's grace and love with texts like this? Where is the gospel or good news in this story? And now I found myself asking an, an adaption of Sean Ginwright's question from his book, The Four Pivots. How do I have to exist in light of this text for someone else to be free? Before we dive too far into those questions and into our exploration, I want to make sure that we're all on the same page. So let's look at what has happened in Exodus to get us to this point. Last week, we discussed the story of Moses being called, the story in which God enters with Moses into a covenant of liberation for God's people who have been oppressed and marginalized. Also, the divine name Yahweh is revealed, and humanity through Moses is entered into a personal encounter of who God is among them. A lot happens in the chapters between our reading from last week and our reading for today. Moses goes back to Egypt from Mount Sinai and brings his brother Aaron into the work that they are doing. Together, Aaron and Moses go before Pharaoh. First, they performed wonders before Pharaoh, turning their staffs into snakes in order to gain Pharaoh's, hopefully gain, Pharaoh's interest or favor in their plea. However, Pharaoh would not listen to them. So following this encounter began the plagues. First, the water in the Nile River was turned to blood. 
Then there were frogs, gnats, flies, diseased, diseased livestock, boils on their skin, thunder and hail, locusts, and then finally darkness fell upon Egypt. The theologian Terence Fretheim makes an interesting claim about plagues, connecting them to the story of creation. He says that Pharaoh's oppressive and anti-life measures against Israel are anti-creation, striking at the point where God was beginning to fulfill God's covenant in Israel. He continued saying that Egypt is an embodiment of the forces of chaos, threatening a return of the entire cosmos to its pre-creation state. The plagues may thus be viewed as an effect of Pharaoh's anti-creational sins upon the cosmic order. With each plague, though, Pharaoh's decision remains unchanged. He will not let God's people go. And that brings us to today, Exodus 12, verses 1 through 14. The very first thing God tells Moses and Aaron in our scripture for today is that this month shall mark for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. We are nearing the liberation of Israel, and God marks it as a new beginning. This event, this deliverance from captivity, is not just an event. Instead, it is a mark of transition into a new beginning, a new creation in spite of the anti-creation actions of the Pharaoh. God is calling the Hebrew people into new lives, not just in freedom, but in liberation. Emily Towns wrote that liberation and freedom are not the same. Liberation is a process, and freedom is a temporary state of being. Liberation is dynamic. It never ends. God is not just preparing to set the Hebrews free. God is liberating them, all of them. Carol Myers notes in her commentary on Exodus that the Hebrew word for what we translate as the whole congregation of Israel is a gender and age-inclusive term. God is not just liberating a select few priests or high-up people in the Hebrew community. That is why God is, but truly every single person, truly the whole congregation of Israel is being led into a new life for generation and generation and generation to come. That is why at the end of our passage, God says, this day shall be a day of remembrance for you. You shall celebrate it as a festival to the Lord. Throughout your generations, you shall observe it as a perpetual ordinance. Because liberation is dynamic. It never ends. And yet, in this beautiful, transformative new beginning, there is death. When I took that class back in college, like I already confessed, I really struggled with this text. I remember writing in the margins of my Bible, how can a God of light and love bring this death and darkness? And now I still find myself asking a similar question, though it looks a little different. Instead of wondering how God exists in this text, I have to ask myself how I exist in this text. Who am I in this story? To borrow once again from Sean Ginwright, how can I exist in this text in the places I occupy with the power and privilege that I hold for the liberation of someone else? When I took that class in college, I approached my professor, Dr. Robert Williamson, after the lecture, needing an answer. How can God exist in this text? 
and his answer shocked me. He said, I think you may be looking at your problem the wrong way. It's important to remember that when we read the Bible, we have to read from below, from the perspective of the marginalized. God sides with the little guy, the oppressed, and the marginalized. When Dr. Williamson first told me that, I felt really unsatisfied. It didn't seem to be enough of an answer for me, but I think four years later, I am finally starting to understand what he meant. When God seems to choose favorites, we should always see the favorite as the oppressed, the marginalized, the poor, the forgotten, the person who in the park across the street will go to sleep tonight in a tent or on a bench because they do not have a, a building to go home to. James H. Cohn, the father of black liberation theology, asserts that God stands firmly on the side of the oppressed. I am not always the main character in God's story. And sometimes I am the problem. Sometimes we are the ones whose heart has been hardened. We are the ones who deny freedom to the afflicted. We are the ones in the way of the new beginning that God is creating. When I was a child listening and singing to songs in vacation Bible school, I knew that Pharaoh was the bad guy because he stood in the way of God's work. Now, I realize that sometimes I am the bad guy, the one in the way. There are times where we look more like Pharaoh's destructive and anti-creational actions than the people meeting at twilight preparing for their journey into liberation. In our lives, the new beginning is often the liberation of someone else, and we have to exist in a way that is working with God and not against God's work. We are called every single day to live in search of the ways that we are standing in the way of the new creation. God is working in our midst. Every breath of creation is filled with the presence of God, and the love of God is imminent all around us. And there are glimpses of the kingdom of heaven wherever we look. So, are you going to join God in the holy work of the new beginning, or will you stand in its way? God is doing a new and glorious thing, and it is up to us to join in. Amen.